Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so that you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. I'm your host, Patrick Beeman. Before we get to today's interview, I wanted to tell you about a special package we're going to be offering. Head on over to InsideTheBoards.com and check it out. I'm not going to give you all the details now, but we've created these packages that give you an extremely discounted bundle of products from the leaders in board preparation to help you succeed on your third year clerkships. We're calling it the Inside the Board Study Smarter Package. If the sales go well for our initial offering, it's going to be a limited time only until early August, but if they go well, we'll be doing the same thing for second years as well. So check it out. Today's episode is brought to you by MedSchoolCoach.com. MedSchoolCoach is the leader in helping students achieve their med school dreams, but it's not just about getting into med school. They're offering now virtual tutoring services to help you succeed on your exams, whether it be the USMLE, the Comlex, your shelf exams, or during your coursework during the first couple years. Check out MedSchoolCoach.com to be matched with a tutor who can not only help teach you what you need to know to do well on your exams, but also help you learn the skills you need to succeed in medical school. Today, I have a very special guest, Dr. Sahil Mehta from MedSchoolCoach.com. He is a a recent graduate from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, the uh, Harvard Medical School's affiliated program where he completed training in interventional radiology. Um, He's got an illustrious career, you can see from uh, his bio on his website, where he served as the senior editor for USMLERX's uh, QMAX and has helped uh, thousands of medical students uh, through Med School Coach get into medical school. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about a new offering that they're going to have, which is virtual tutoring for medical students. So Sahil, welcome. Thanks for being on the program. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for having me here. Before we get started, let's kind of do our sort of didactic thing. Our question of the day from the USMLE Bulletin is about a previously healthy 72-year-old man who comes to the physician because of decreased urinary output during the past two days. He has had no urinary output for eight hours. Examination shows suprapubic fullness and an enlarged prostate. His serum urea nitrogen concentration is 88 milligrams per deciliter, and serum creatinine concentration is 3.5 milligrams per deciliter. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A. Ultrasonography of the prostate. B ultrasonography of the kidneys, C, CT scan of the abdomen, D, bladder catheterization, and E, intravenous pilography. You might want to pause the podcast for a moment while you think about this. And the answer is D, bladder catheterization. All right, so if you are a medical student approaching this question, how are you going to kind of dissect it? So, you know, as I think about this question, there's, I pull out some of the key components here, right? The first is the things that I know are abnormal. And, you know, I don't need any medical training to know that if you're not peeing for two days, and especially for the last eight hours, that's bad. And so I kind of think about it, you know, I think about it first, and let's figure out what's wrong with this patient. And I know that obviously, 
he is not urinating, and that's that's wrong. You know, the USMLE always likes to give lab values, and I think a lot of times for second and third year students who may not be completely familiar with looking at lab values every single day, they can sometimes get overwhelmed by it. But, you know, BUN and creatinine are probably two values that you should have a ballpark figure of what normal is. Um, And, you know, a BUN level of 5 to 20 or so is normal. And a creatinine, I think you should certainly know that, you know, anything above, you know, one point. 1.4, 3, 1.4, you're getting into the abnormal range. So it doesn't matter how abnormal they are, but just that they are abnormal to me. So to me, you know, I'm thinking, okay, so this guy is not peeing, and I know that his BUN and creatinine levels are out of whack. So that, to me, you know, BUN and creatinine levels, to me, is always sort of an indication of uh, how well the body is excreting waste um, or how well the kidneys are working. And so in this case, I see that, you know, there's something basically wrong with him. So that's, that's I guess, a long way of saying I figured out that there's something wrong with this guy. That's not rocket science because now we've got to figure out what's, what's, uh, what to do with him. And so if I look at the different options here, you know, I, I noticed that on a physical exam, he has an enlarged prostate. And I probably remember back to uh, my days of medical school and, and will remember that, you know, there's three different ways that you can have urine failure. And, and one of them is what we call post-renal in, in the sense that your kidneys are working okay, but your body just can't get rid of the urine. Uh, and if you just think about the path of urine from kidneys to ureters to bladder and then out the urethra, there's a blockage somewhere. And in this case, it seems like his blockage is uh, at his prostate level because he's got this enlarged prostate. He's not peeing. Then, okay, so I'm thinking, okay, so he's got an enlarged prostate. I know that. I am thinking, okay, his blockage is at that level. So what's the next step I can do? Well, ultrasound of the prostate, well, that's, you know, that's something we can always do. And you can measure the prostate size. But I'm not sure that it helps you any here. You know, it doesn't necessarily, who cares how big the prostate is? If Let's just pull out a random number. Let's say it's 60 milliliters or 70 milliliters. Is that going to help this patient in the, in the short term? No. Maybe in the very long term I could know. But I think I already know he's got a big prostate and the exact size of that is, is irrelevant. Then there's also the option of sort of an ultrasound of the kidneys. And, you know, you would get an ultrasound of the kidneys if you thought, his problem may be what we call uh, renal or sort of backing up his kidneys, right? If he has hydronephrosis and his kidneys are becoming very large, if his collecting system is becoming very large. And you could get that and, and you know, maybe actually in this case he would have hydronephrosis because his uh, urine is backing up so much. But with that said, it, you know, the USMLE is always asking what the most appropriate next step is, not what three steps from now are. And so if you think about along those lines, you know, the imaging, including a CT scan, is probably not the first thing you should do, and the bladder catheterization certainly is. This guy is in, in you know, sort of renal failure because he is not excreting urine. And bladder catheterization, essentially putting a tube into the bladder, through the urethra is going to relieve all his symptoms, is going to drain the urine out, is going to dramatically decrease the waste products that are in his system, the you know creatinine and the, and the nitrogen that's, in, that's building up in his system. It'll dramatically reduce that and uh, sort of solve his short-term problems. Now, the, after that, any of these other choices may be relevant because maybe we do want to see you know, is it definitely his prostate that's big? Uh, is it something else that might be blocking it? Is there anything else that's going on? 
But the next step in management for sure here would be sort of relieving this guy's symptoms and, and treating him. So the bladder catheterization is is the next step here. And I think, you know, in most Yosemite questions, if you just, if you're looking and you see an intervention that is going to sort of relieve symptoms, solve the problem, that is probably the better first step rather than an imaging study. Imaging studies are certainly great and, and are needed, but they're usually, you know, they may not be the first thing in a patient who's either an extremist or in pain or something along those lines. And intravenous pyelography, just for, for those of you guys who don't know, is sort of an old school um, technique of injecting or of seeing the ureters uh, with dye in them. And, and in reality, uh, you know, in my five years of training, I have never done an IVP, and I don't think anybody does it anywhere. Uh, CT scans, MR urography, things like that have totally replaced that. So most likely, if you see that as an answer choice, it's incorrect. I think that's uh, sort of interesting because I think that a lot of times answers or a lot of the questions that include answer choices related to imaging studies often include distractors or incorrect uh, answers that are perhaps outdated, such as your suggestion about the um, IVP, or maybe something used more by specialists and not really expected um, of a medical student to know. Personally, I I can't think of a, a a reason why you would on a step one, step two, or even a shelf exam be interested in a prostate ultrasonography. Situations which call for that probably are a little more, in my mind, uh, appropriate for a specialist like a, a urologist, for instance. When it comes to bladder catheterization for those who can't urinate, I think this particular question also illustrates a general principle that we see postoperatively if a patient has a hysterectomy and all of a sudden they can't urinate uh, 24 hours after their procedure, the next step in, in management is likewise to drain the bladder via straight catheterization because medications or just the interruption of nerves uh, in that surgical area in that uh, kind of plexus can be affected such that micturition is is delayed. So in general, I think this question is probably trying to examine the candidate's knowledge about what to do when you have a backed up bladder, as it were. And uh, more often than not, the answer is going to be a catheterization of some sort to get those waste products out, correct? Yes, I, mean, I, I certainly, and I, and I think your your point about the imaging studies is a, is a very good one. You know, we, we have a plethora of imaging studies that people can choose from, but in reality, for the knowledge level of a med student, you should sort of know a few basic ones. Ultrasound of the kidneys is a good one to know because that's a very common one. CT of the abdomen, certainly CT of the chest, obviously an X-ray and a CT of the head. And then maybe an MR of the head. Uh, And then beyond that, I'm not sure that there's going to be too many situations where you're going to be required to know the indications of some of the more advanced uh, imaging studies that we can do. Agreed. I think that's a a great point. Just the examples you gave, there are certain hard and fast rules that really are not exceptionable. Uh, For instance, if you have a suspected stroke, the next step in in management uh, is going to be a non-contrast CT of the head to ensure there is no hemorrhagic uh, picture going on such that you could give somebody 
like TPA um, when it comes to perhaps the genitourinary system in, in general. It's helpful to know, for instance, that a non-contrast CT of the kidneys is going to be your test of choice to diagnose a kidney stone. But really, there probably are not all that many particular imaging studies that are hard and fast next step in management type of um, ideas that, that you need to keep in mind. A lot of these imaging studies in clinical practice will likely change based on a patient's own presentation, the capabilities of the facility, as well as the radiologist's own comfort level, etc. Any other advice on those distractors you might want to offer? You know, I think I think we covered a lot of those areas, you know, and also keep in mind, you know, one of the big things that everybody in medicine tends towards is when you are looking at imaging studies, typically a lot of times I would say think about the exposure to radiation as well because a lot of times people will try to trick you with that, whereas a CT scan might give you great information. It obviously exposes the patient to a lot of radiation and an ultrasound may give you the same amount of information, but have no exposure to ionizing radiation. Um, so that's, a, I think, a concept that a lot of test writers will you know, try to test uh, at some point. I don't think it's a super high-yield topic in general, but it is something to keep in the back of your mind that if there's a test like an ultrasound that can give the same amount of information as a CT scan and doesn't have the side effects of radiation, it may be worth considering. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about you yourself. So where did you go to school? So I went to undergrad at Columbia. Um, I was an engineering major there. I never really considered medicine uh, probably until my third year at Columbia when I realized that engineering, while it was fascinating, it didn't necessarily have the impact that that I would have loved it to have. And so at that point, I had actually uh, decided I was going to be pre-med and went to University of Chicago for medical school after that. Okay. I I imagine uh, five, six years ago when you were applying for residency, radiology was decently competitive. It still is. What resources did you use when you were studying for your board exam, particularly step one? Yeah. Um, so when I applied, you know, radiology and, and the, the pathway to interventional radiology is actually super competitive and um, it's changed a little bit. And I think that's one thing that happens. Specialties go in ebbs and flows in terms of their competitiveness level. But it was definitely very, very competitive when I applied. So, you know, I, I didn't go into step one thinking I was going to do radiology, but I did go into step one with the idea that I wanted to get a score that wouldn't preclude me from doing any specialty I wanted later on, whether that be alpha or radiology or dermatology, whatever I decided later on. And so, you know, I I went into the test, you know, knowing I wanted to do well. And one of the things that was funny about UChicago, and UChicago was was a great medical school, great clinical training, great research, but they were not very good at teaching what was relevant to the boards. And they actually made a big point of that. They said, you know, we don't teach to the boards. They kind of had a hubris about them that said, uh, we don't teach the boards, we teach you what we think you should know. And that's fine. However, you know, for a first, second year medical student as they're studying for the boards, that's nerve wracking. And so 
you know, I had to, I would say, teach myself a lot of things or, or teach it in a new way that I hadn't learned before. And my big resources at that time were um, certainly first aid as sort of a reference. Golion uh, had a really good pathology book that I used. I also utilized some online videos. Actually, at that point, they were in DVD format um, from, from Kaplan. So I had kind of a bunch of different resources that, that I was using. Interestingly enough, you know, one of my pathology teachers has become um, known for a very big resource, which is Pathoma. Yes. Uh, he was, a, uh, I think, only a first or second year pathologist when I was at UChicago. You know, it would have been great if he uh, made that resource before because I really known stuff. But he, you know, at that point, I, I used a lot of other material. So I used a combination of things. I mean, certainly first aid was was the Bible to start with. I found myself very, it was very helpful for me to be a visual learner. And so I liked the video series that, that Kaplan did have at that point, um, along with, you know, some of the, some of the other books that were spread across uh, no one company, no one author. It was just a random collection of books that I ended up using. Sure. Um, and you're talking about Dr. Hussein Sattar? That's right. Okay. I bet he's a pretty decent lecturer. Yeah, he was, he was very good. I, I think the general sense when I ask people who are involved in, in the sort of medical school preparation space, the recurring theme is Really, there are a limited number of go-to resources, and first aid constantly shows up. So you use first aid, the the book, and then eventually you ended up getting involved with their question bank as well, huh? I did, yes. You know, USMLE uh, RX was first aid's question bank, and you know there there's several good question banks. USMLE RX is one of them. Um, USMLE World is one that a lot of people come across, and I think I use that a lot actually in my own studies. So I think there's several good question banks. I, I think the key with question banks is you can spend a lot of time researching them and you can spend a lot of time debating which one to choose. But I think at the end of the day, most of them get the knowledge across as long as you put the time into doing the questions and sort of understanding the explanations. That's what, what I would emphasize to students to do. During your time in medical school, did you have any test-taking failures, maybe not an actual failure on an exam, but anything where you really put the time in or effort but did not perform the way you wanted? I, well, I would say definitely, um, you know, I was, I was a great student um, at Columbia. Uh, I did very well there without too much work, honestly. And I was an engineer, and there was a lot of sort of thinking involved in engineering, and analysis involved. And then I got to medical school and I actually failed my first test. I got a, I failed my first test straight out. And that was because I didn't realize the amount of sheer memorization and volume that medical school was going to require. And I think that's very different from what engineering required, which was, you know, sort of, uh, we always placed an emphasis not on memorizing material, but on understanding material. And I think, you know, one of the downsides of medical education is I, I think a lot of the first two years is is emphasizing memorizing material. And then in your third and fourth year, and then, of course, beyond in residency and fellowship, you sort of learn to synthesize it. And it's no longer memorization, but it's a, an understanding. But the way that we've structured our system, and maybe this is, I mean, this has been going on for uh, eons, 
is you need as a physician a great foundation to understand later on. And that foundation comes with sort of a lot of root memorization early on and understanding the terms and, and understanding the antibiotics and everything else that, um, you know, you just have to sit down and, and memorize. Um, and so I remember, you know, my first anatomy practical, I failed uh, because I didn't think that they were going to ask me about the tiny little nerve that courses through <laughs> Uh, you know, the wherever. I, I just didn't think they were going to ask that kind of question, but they but they did. Ten years later, um, you know, I, I think about that as I'm, uh, let's say, placing a venous access line. Uh, I think about what nerves are around there and, and where I have to go and, and things like that. So I will tell you from personal experience that no matter, you know, how uh, good you think you are, no matter what you think your study skills are, uh, med school requires a, a different set of study skills, and I think that's very true for the USMLE. You know, you have to sit down and, and really get a great foundation of knowledge before you can really take it to the next level. Yeah, so thanks for sharing that. I, I think what the takeaway that uh, listeners should get from this is, is, number one, you can fail an anatomy exam and still make it into a competitive residency, and even radiology, which is probably the most um, anatomical of the clinical specialties, for sure. What about shelf exams? So we talked a little bit about the USMLE specifically, but shelf exams, when you're on your rotations, does that take a different set of skills in order to do well on those? You know, to, to me, the shelf exams are, I, I don't know if they take a different set of skills. I think they certainly take a lot of work. I think they certainly take um, a lot of clinical knowledge and clinical reasoning, which I actually like quite, quite a bit. Because for the first time, I think shelf exams, you know, typically students will take them after they've taken shelf one because now they're on the wards and, and um, you know, seeing patients. And I think that it's the first time that a lot of students will have the opportunity to take a truly clinical exam and maybe understand it. You know, kind of thinking back to the 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 question that we started the day off with with the bladder catheterization. Um, you know, I think that's a very reasonable shelf exam question for sure. say for internal medicine. You know, it's it's a it's a different way of thinking because you know I don't think on shelf exams you you need to know anything about the Krebs cycle anymore. But now you need to know sort of about, you know, um, how to treat a patient with diabetes or how to, you know, work up that patient. I think it's actually quite exciting because I think shelf exams um, really allow you to uh, show your clinical knowledge. And so to me, the best preparation for shelf exams is obviously studying and learning from the books and learning material, but also sort of watching your residents, watching your attendings do clinical reasoning and kind of ask them, hey, why did you why did you decide that for the next step in management? Okay. Let's talk about Med School Coach. So you founded Med School Coach in 2007. What do you guys do? And full disclosure, I've been working with you for probably the past almost maybe over four years as an advisor, helping people get in to med school and, and prepare good applications. But what led you to undertake that uh, during medical school itself? Yeah, so you know that, that's exactly what we do. Is we we help students get into med school, plain and simple. Um, and you know th this started as an endeavor that was coming about because you know as I was applying to medical school, I had uh, a smattering of advising here and there, but I relied a lot on something like student doctor and random bits of information I found online. And actually, I didn't have any real mentors. I didn't have any real friends who came before me who went to medical school and applied. But then, you know, I, as I applied and got in and realized that 
there was so much that goes into a good medical school application and so many ways to kind of make yourself stand out. You know, while I had a very good GPA out of college, I didn't have the best MCAT score by any means whatsoever. In fact, I would say it was a very, very average MCAT score. And I was able to get into what was the top ranked school in the country at that time at Penn by basically putting together a great application. I didn't end up going there, but I, but I ended up um, you know, thinking about it very heavily. And, and I learned from that experience that you know, putting together a great application and, putting, and selling yourself on paper is a skill unto itself that um, nobody will teach you. And, and on top of nobody teaching you that, there's just so much that goes into the med school application process, the, the AMCAS application, the timing of it, um, how to prepare your classes, how to get letters of recommendation, and then how to sell yourself, how to write that personal statement, how to get the activities to be to a point where you are, you know, separating yourself from every other applicant that's coming in. Uh, and then interviewing, you know, how, how do you interview? How do you sit down in front of another physician or a physician and kind of sell yourself and, and sell yourself without coming across as cocky and without coming across as somebody that's unlikable? These are all skills that we help our students develop and we help them perfect. And so as I didn't have the help going through, uh, a couple of my friends were asking me for help as, as I was uh, a little bit older. And, you know, I saw an opportunity to kind of provide a lot of help for, for students. And so we've been doing this now for the last uh, almost 10 years and have had great success. A lot of students come to us. A lot of students come to us who have good advising at school and a lot of students come to us who don't have good advising at school. And they kind of get our physician mentor help through the process uh, and it's every part of the process from day one of when you enter uh, college uh, but most people will come to us maybe right as they're applying to medical school helping them put together that great personal statement helping them figure out how to put together activities to sell themselves to an admissions committee figuring out where to apply big you know there's 150 MD schools there's another 40 or so uh, osteopathic schools how do you know where to apply and, and you know which schools fit your fit your criteria and these are all the things that we kind of uh, help with and have been helping many students with and had great success through yeah and now you're hoping to offer something to those you've helped get in as it were through tutoring uh, how have you um, come to the conclusion that this is a need that you can fill so you know one of the distressing things i would say is that to me, and, and you know this, Patrick, you know, the USMLE step one and, and to a lot of extent step two are what I call the most important tests of a doctor's life. And, and the reason for that is the, the MCAT, you know, we have a lot of students who take the MCAT two, three, four times, and that's okay. You know, you can kind of have multiple cracks at the MCAT. But the USMLE, you actually only get one crack at. Um, as long as you pass, you can't take that test again. And so that score has become a very, very big factor in residency admissions. And it's not just getting into good residency, but it's getting into the residency of your choice. And so, you know, if you want to do a competitive specialty, like let's say orthopedics um, or plastic surgery or dermatology, you really have to get a great USMLE score in order to be competitive for those specialties. And so, it, I call it the most important test of your life because I really think it is because you know your life obviously as a physician 
is extremely different as a orthopedic surgeon than it is as you know a family medicine doctor. And not to, obviously, there's plenty of people who want to go into family medicine. But if you don't want to do that, but that's kind of what you end up with because you didn't have a score that was competitive enough for maybe some of the other competitive specialties, that could really sort of put a damper on things. And I know uh, even personal friends and family members who you know wanted to go through, let's say, wanted to get into dermatology but couldn't. And then end up being very upset kind of where they were um, as they had to use the backup list of their programs. So basically because it's such an important test and because we found that there was no real good credible um, service that was really offering tutoring in the way that we like to do, which is super specialized, super one-on-one, really going at your strengths and weaknesses at an affordable price – we thought we could fill that need, and, and I think we, we will be doing that uh, with our amazing advisors, our amazing tutors that we have, and it will really help make a huge difference, hopefully, in people's uh, USMLE score so that they can you know, be competitive for the best specialties. And for some people, you know, that, that's getting a 250, 260. For other people, that's just wanting to pass the exam, and that's totally reasonable as well. Um, you know, wherever you stand on that spectrum, I think sort of individualized services can, can really help you do well. And so the focus of your uh, services, is it going to be USMLE step one, or um, what exactly are you guys going to be offering? So step one, step two as well as medical school sort of subjects. You know, obviously doing well on step one and step two starts with doing well in your classes in medical school and on your rotations. Um, and so if they're, you know, obviously the USMA step one, step two CS, step two CK are the big sort of test at the end of this. But if a student is struggling through anatomy or physiology or biochemistry or ob or internal medicine, whatever it is that they're struggling through, we have the people to help them do well in that particular subject. Okay. Well, let me ask you sort of a hard question. Before, when you were talking about your own journey throughout medical school, you said med school required a different set of skills than being an engineering undergrad did. And that was sort of a shock to you as a new medical student. A lot of schools will offer additional tutoring services or, or help for their uh, students who might be having difficulty understanding material. So why should a student come to med school coach um, and sign up for virtual tutoring when they could use these other resources uh, perhaps for free at their own school? Well, I mean, I would say, number one, if you have those resources and they're offered, I would absolutely tell you to take advantage of them. Um, There's no reason not to take advantage of the resources that your school has to offer. With that said, what we found is that there's oftentimes a huge gap between the resources that can be offered by a school, let's say for free, or, you know, as it goes back to the advising side, as they can offer for advising, because there's so many students that need the help, not enough sort of tutors, not enough advisors, not enough people um, to help you through. And so what we're really trying to fill is that niche for somebody who, you know, needs the help in a more sustained format needs to stick with or likes to stick with maybe one or two tutors who can really help them, um, likes to kind of have the best of the best helping them through. And, And that's one thing that I think we are really, really making sure of. Every tutor that we recruit is not just scoring amazing on their tests. They are truly amazing teachers. 
And, and that's what we want to emphasize, and that's what we want to make sure we we get forward to our students is that we have tutors who really have a passion for teaching, really have a passion for connecting with particular students and, and will help them maximize their score. There's also the added benefit, sort of, uh, you know, our virtual aspect. Some people may shy away from that at first, but it actually, when it comes down to it, is actually very beneficial. Um, and the reasons for that are, you know, you can do it at any time of the day. You can do an hour whenever you need. You don't have to be at school. You don't have to be at home. You can be anywhere you want, anywhere in the country. Hell, you can be, uh, you know, vacationing on Hawaii and studying for the USMLE if you wanted to. Um, you know, so you have the option to kind of be anywhere, do it anytime. And I think that really helps students as well. That would be a terrible vacation. <laughs> yeah, I, would, I, I take that back. You shouldn't go to Hawaii. You should go to Hawaii after you go somewhere. <laughs> Agreed. With um, with the virtual tutoring, we're talking students who either are struggling or those who want to gain a competitive edge. So really, this is something that anybody who is going through this journey should consider. I, I definitely think so. So, you know, again, there is the USMLE step one is probably the most important test of your life. You can only take it once. No matter how well you think you're doing, you know, unless you are scoring a 270 on your practice tests, there's probably something you can improve upon. And not improving upon it or not taking that opportunity to improve upon it, I hope doesn't, but could have detrimental effects on sort of, you know, the specialty of your choosing. And and, and we really want to make sure that um, it doesn't. Well, I think this is great because if you look at these sort of stories that that people tell when it comes to their own board preparation or medical school um, experience. We, I ask on this podcast, you know, what, what resources did you use, for instance, for step one? And a lot of times we're getting, yeah, I used first aid or I had my own sort of particular books I really enjoyed and then maybe you world or another question bank. But a lot of people forget that there are multiple different, I guess, uh, angles from which you can attack, study um, and get assistance. Um, you absolutely need questions. You absolutely need the content that comes from books. But some people, I think uh, a lot of people would benefit from a one-to-one kind of accountability and, and guidance when it comes to what to study and how to study that you really can't learn on your own especially if you're a new med student whose first kind of major standardized test in med school is going to be this uh, USMLE Step 1, or even for subject examinations within your school. I think that with what I know you've done with Med School Coach and the advisors uh, of which I am one, we personalize everything for the client. And I think that something like a virtual tutoring is going to have that ability to help students learn that sort of new set of skills you had mentioned um, that's necessary to do well in medical school. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely correct. You know, we there are, as you mentioned, Patrick, there, there's just a lot of books out there. There's a lot of material out there. And what we're not looking to do is reinvent the wheel with those. We are really looking instead to help you utilize those and really figure out what your weak points are so that we can maximize your score. That That's our bottom line goal. Um, and I think, again, by sort of providing very, very structured but specific services um, to our students, we're, we're going to be able to do that. 
Awesome. Well, um, you should check out medschoolcoach.com and look at the virtual tutoring uh, on the website, um, sign up, and actually uh, Sahil's offered a free hour of tutoring to one student who leaves a review on iTunes. Just leave us a review for this podcast, send a screenshot to info at insidetheboards.com, and you will be entered for this episode's contest to win a free hour of virtual tutoring. So thanks for your time, man. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me. Head over to InsideTheBoards.com to sign up for our newsletter where you can stay up to date on our various podcast offerings, products, and high-yield review of products, and even leave us an audio message with your questions to help you succeed in medical school. You can always follow us on Twitter at BoardsInsider, Facebook.com slash InsideTheBoards, as well as on Instagram and Pinterest. As always, thank you so much for listening and for becoming involved with our community. We look forward to continuing to help you study smarter, not harder. I'd like to thank the folks from Everyone Leaves who provided the music for this podcast. The song is Seasonal Effective. You can check them out at everyoneleavesband.bandcamp.com or facebook.com slash everyoneleavesband. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical Licensing Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, or National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during this program is the property of Inside the Boards or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.